I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Forty years ago, the world was introduced to five patients. They were the first reported cases of what would come to be known as Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, or AIDS. My two guests today have been in the trenches of this disease almost from the beginning through research and activism. Please welcome Dr. Kenneth Mayer, Medical Research Director of Fenway Health and a Professor of Medicine, Global Health, and Population at Harvard, and Professor Greg Gonzalez from the Yale School of Public Health. Together we will discuss the past, present, and future of HIV-AIDS research and activism, and how community engagement has shaped research progress. Welcome, Kenneth and Greg. Thanks for having me. And you guys know each other, right, from way back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start by having you both tell us a bit about your background. Uh, Ken, would you like to start? Yeah, and I had already sort of suggested to Fenway that they should be doing some research because there were so many questions that we didn't have answers to about best practices for caring for gay men and lesbians and other sexual gender minority people. So they knew um, even prior to AIDS that that was sort of my, my orientation. Did you have any kind of framework in those early days for um, dealing with the community or was it even kind of on people's radar that they needed to have more community outreach? Yeah, well, Fenway is a community health center and it was actually founded as part of the free clinic movement. It had a strong uh, feminist tradition. Uh, and uh, so um, it, was, it wasn't a gay clinic uh, uh, per se. It, was, it worked with a lot of different community activist groups. So uh, interacting with the community was kind of a natural. Um, it was more my, my day job where I was uh, studying infectious diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, where I think it took quite a number of years to get them more engaged with the community. And how about you, Greg? What's your background? Well, um, I moved to Boston in 1981 to go to college and subsequently dropped out of college <laughs> in the middle of the 80s and ended up just waiting tables in Harvard Square and different places around the Boston area. And then in the middle of the 90s, I met somebody who was HIV positive, which is the first person I had ever met who was living with HIV and went in search of answers. And there was no internet. There's no Google. Um, and if you're a college dropout, you're not getting into the Tufts Medical School Library where I was an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And so I was desperate for information about what was going to happen to my then boyfriend, my then partner. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled upon a group called ACT UP probably in the late 80s and went to see what was it all about and found my people, basically. <laughs> Gay men and lesbians, other queer people in the same boat. Either they were living with HIV themselves or they had friends or lovers or relatives who were newly diagnosed with the disease and trying to figure out what to do, what could help them, what could save them in a context where we didn't have many treatments, if at all, for the disease. And people were also interested in pressing the system to, to, to make it go faster. And that was my sort of entry into sort of AIDS activism in the mid to late 90s. Had you been involved in any other kind of grassroots activism before that, or was that your, your first one? It was in the 1980s. And Right before I dropped out of college, I was involved in the sort of anti-apartheid movement on campus. Um, mm -hmm. It was during the still apartheid era in South Africa. I was involved with some sort of Central American activism as well, but really, you know, was coming out. Of, it wasn't coming out of the closet per se, but like really, it was a that was my first decade of being out as a gay man, and um, my identity as a gay man in a political sense had not really evolved. I didn't really think of it as being part of a community because I was mostly cloistered in sort of a college-age, postgraduate circle of friends. Mm -hmm. 
Ken, did you kind of have a similar experience when you started in with um, the the activism? Well, you know, I'm a bit older than Greg, quite a bit. And so, you know, I was an undergraduate at University of Pennsylvania, so I was involved in some of the anti-war movement work. And uh, it wasn't until I got to Chicago and medical school and the involvement of Howard Brown that sort of the world of uh, my personal life as a gay man and, um, and community activism kind of clicked. And it really was when I got to Boston Fenway that it started making making more sense. And the AIDS epidemic, like for so many uh, things, was a catalyst for a lot of um, other you know, subsequent changes. So going back to the beginning, can we talk about the early years of the AIDS crisis? Like, what do you remember personally from when you first became aware of it? Well, I mean, it was just, it was a terror, you know, because uh, for the first, you know, for the first three and a half, four years, we didn't have, you know, an ideologic agent. We didn't know what was causing this. So there was a lot of hysteria and a lot of uh, misinformation, uh, not unlike uh, things we're talking <laughs> today, um, you know, uh, and a lot of stigma, you know, and again, a lack of federal leadership. So, and as a man, I was like busily trying to figure out like what was safe, what wasn't to chart my own course and to advise my friends and patients. But in the meantime, starting to see sicker and sicker people and the numbers were increasing. So it was really a very challenging time. Mm-hmm. So for both of you, what was the interplay between communities, government, and scientists in the first decade or so compared with now? You know, before ACT UP, there was gay men's health crisis. There were organizations set up to do the job government would not do, right? Mm-hmm. The whole infrastructure of care and support was set up, not just in New York and Boston, but all basically all over the country. And so this is also the Reagan administration. And remember, President Reagan doesn't say the word AIDS until seven years into his presidency. Mm. And so the situation was fraught. Um, But then you also have to remember that there were sort of people who stood up early on. You know, Senator Kennedy, uh, Henry Waxman, um, there were people in Congress who did a lot to ensure that the government response was um, as good as it could have been under the context of the Reagan and Bush administration, the first part of the pandemic. And it became very, very collaborative, I'd say, like in the basically the second decade in the 90s. I think once we hit 1996, something happens. And I don't want to be rude, but I think a lot of middle class people who had access to health insurance took their antiretroviral therapy, um, which was basically a game changer by 1996, um, and went home. And the epidemic continued to expand and, and flourish in places that have been historically ignored in the context of American public health, mm-hmm. the rural South, among uh, young gay men of color, et cetera. And so I think there've been different phases and it depends on which communities you're talking about. So Ken, as a, as a doctor and a researcher serving the community, what were some of the things that you saw then compared to now in terms of how the government played any part in helping or hindering the movement? Sure. You know, there are analogies and differences between the HIV AIDS epidemic and the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. You know, in in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, think about the government response. It really was pretty heterogeneous. As Greg said, Reagan really didn't utter the word AIDS till well into his second term. But he also appointed a Surgeon General who was, um, his claim to fame for becoming Surgeon General was he was very anti-choice. He went around the country showing movies about the viability of fetuses. And, and so we thought this guy's going to be a disaster, Everett Koop. And he got the fact that this was uh, primarily a sexually transmitted infection. He also understood the importance of sterile injection equipment and was actually as progressive as one might imagine with an administration like the Reagan administration. But 
mean, he was an individual. There were people who started off with business as usual, were very traditional people like Anthony Fauci, who was, you know, rigorously trained scientist and very enmeshed in his intramural career at the NIH and really hadn't had um, a lot of interaction with community who learned as uh, the process went on. And I think that's really a tribute to the uh, manner in which ACT UP conducted its work, which was a combination of a great savvy for understanding how to engage community, to engage wider public attention and help frame the issues. And then um, um, also doing their research and engaging other scientists and coming back with really reasonable hypotheses and very thoughtful approaches to how clinical research was done. And to the credit of people like Dr. Fauci, they became amenable to uh, some of the things that the activists were, were presenting. But you know, you have to think about this playing out in a very different timeline than SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, our first phase was we were flying blind for almost four years. And then you had a period from 1980, late 84, early 85, where there was diagnostic testing available, but we didn't fully know what it meant to be antibody positive. Did that mean that some people might have immunity like antibodies to hepatitis B, or did it mean that everybody was going to get sick and ultimately die because there wasn't effective uh, uh, treatment? So you had this horrible sense of urgency and the sort of Damocles hanging over a very large number of people, a whole communities of, of individuals. And as Greg mentioned, you know, by 1996, but you know, that's more than a decade, you do finally have an effective treatment paradigm, but then you have the, the problem that the epidemic has become so widespread and disproportionately affecting disenfranchised communities, but the people who have access to these medicines, sort of some of them check out of the game. And then it's the matter of sustaining public interest and support to ensure that disenfranchised communities in the U.S. and increasingly it was recognized people who didn't have access to these medications globally really were going to get access to the whole issue of justice became first and foremost as part of the AIDS movement during that period of time. Yeah, yes. Speaking about the global issue, Greg, I understand your work has taken place in countries besides the U.S. So Can you talk about the importance of public education and activism from the ground level on non-U.S. soil? Well, first of all, just to try to link this to sort of the earlier work, Mm -hmm. as Ken said, most of us in ACT UP were self-taught. Few, if any of us, were trained as scientists in our undergraduate careers, if we had undergraduate careers. And so, you know, we didn't just learn the clinical research and the biostatistics. We learned the basic research of immunology and virology, et cetera. And in 1996, as Ken remarked upon antiviral therapy shows up, highly active antiviral therapy with protease inhibitors, which changes HIV from a life sentence to quote unquote, a chronic manageable illness, except there's a new sort of medical apartheid, both in the US, the uninsured versus the insured, but around the world, because these drugs are expensive, right? They are expensive because they are largely made by these large pharmaceutical companies. There's no generic competition. And so there's there's two worlds, one in which you can purchase your health and another one in which you are condemned to death outside of the U.S. In around 2000, a friend of mine, Zaki Akhmat, with the Treatment Action Campaign um, in South Africa came to New York and said, you know, we're building a new treatment action campaign or a movement to get access to AIDS drugs. We know what you all did in terms of training yourselves around the science of HIV and using that information and using that knowledge as a lever to change policy, can you come down and train our members? So around that time, we went down to South Africa and did a couple of trainings, but the demographic of the people who were the members of Treatment Action Campaign were not the gay, white, middle-class men that I represented or Mark Harrington represented or Peter Staley, these well-known AIDS activists even even today. And they were poor women from the townships. And so we had to take discussions of 
the HIV life cycle, the genes and proteins that, it, that are produced, the opportunistic infections, the antiretroviral drugs and their side effects, the organs of the body, and translated into a way that was understandable um, to people without necessarily any sort of uh, secondary education, let alone a university biology class or degree. Mm-hmm. And what was amazing to me is that it was totally possible, right? You know, if you are a good teacher, you can teach people many things. And, you know, what happened with the Treatment Action Campaign is that they were able to take that basic training that we did in the early 2000s and turn it into a national treatment education campaign so that in all of South Africa's languages, they had posters and brochures and booklets that talked to you about drugs for opportunistic infections and posters that said, fluconazole treats fungal diseases associated with AIDS. Find out if your clinic has it. If not, advocate for it. They took sort of what was a political tool by ACT UP and the people who were lobbying the, the NIH and the FDA and the drug companies and turned into a tool of mass mobilization. What was interesting is that a couple of years later, we convened a group in the same place. We started those trainings in South Africa with people from over 60 countries around the world said, let's do what we just did in South Africa on a global level. And within the next few years, the the same sort of community-based treatment education and advocacy that you know we pioneered in ACT UP and, and did with our partners in the US, um, we're now exploding across the country from Russia to India to um, countries in South America to Southeast Asia. And there's a worldwide movement now very much modeled on the idea that information is power and that we can use science as a lever to make changes that improve people's health. Yeah. I I mean, this is also kind of reminiscent of our current situation with COVID, where you mentioned that in the early days, a lot of people were self-taught and they had to learn things themselves and then figure out how to disseminate them in the communities. And now, of course, that can all take place online. The problem being that there's really no filter to, for people to distinguish between good and bad information, or if they is, you know, they, they find their echo chambers. Is there, can, in either of your experiences, is there any way that lessons learned from community outreach in those days could be helped to bring, um, an, uh, you know, sort of an end to misinformation regarding COVID, or at least try and curb it in the COVID age? Well, I, I think it's a matter of trying to ensure that they're trusted messengers and to try to be uh, savvy about what are, what's the different media that people are accessing. It's not as if there wasn't disinformation back at the early days of the AIDS epidemic. Both, mm-hmm. both there, was, there were hysterical responses and some people you know, saw it as a political opportunity. Some people on the right saw it as a way to further vilify homosexuality or people who inject drugs or some of the populations affected. And point of fact, there's evidence that the Russians in some parts of the world uh, used it as disinformation that this was, you know, biological warfare or malfeasance on the part of the U.S. government. So there, various people had various agendas to misrepresent the information. You know, the challenge is that, you know, they didn't have the ability to, like, click and disseminate to um, thousands and millions of people uh, the way we do with the Internet now. But I'm not a believer in censorship, so I think it's just getting the message out there. And I think one of the lessons I think that I certainly took away from ACT UP is that understanding the media culture and understanding how people get information uh, and then trying to develop activities, actions that really kind of engage the public imagination is a great way to get people to start paying attention to messages you want to get people about the gravity of a, of a situation. And that's really what we have to keep doing with COVID-19 in terms of ensuring that people get access to vaccinations, both here in the U.S., but particularly globally. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, and Ken remembers this too, there is a sort of something called AIDS denialism 
back after the etiological agent of AIDS was discovered, HIV, in which people like Nobel Prize winners like Carrie Mullis and Peter Duisberg were saying HIV isn't the cause of AIDS, that antiviral therapy was poison, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we dealt with this, and it was being magnified in, in magazines like Spin, uh, which was a rock and roll magazine that came out monthly, and, you know, in publications like the New York Native in New York City. And this was pernicious misinformation on a small scale. Even with sort of the rise of the internet, Tabo Mbeki in South Africa, we just talked about the work of the Treatment Action Campaign, their goal was to get antiviral therapy to people. But in the context of a president who had bought the AIDS denialist lies and was saying HIV doesn't cause AIDS, uh, antiretrovirals are, are poison and we do not need them in this country. And so, you know, the AIDS epidemic was rife with a sort of anti-science misinformation that was being promulgated by a whole set of different people, you know, for frankly, for obscure reasons to me. You know, many of those same people who fought AIDS denialism in the U.S. and in South Africa have had like a, a third or second career in dealing with COVID denial. So, you know, it's it turbocharged through the Internet and Twitter and Facebook, um, but we were dealing it from from early on in the AIDS epidemic as well. We just didn't have the ability to, to spread like wildfire. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, one thing we really haven't been able to successfully do yet, and you know, uh, it's certainly something I know that animates Greg, and, and something we have to keep trying to figure out is the fact that there is a through line from AIDS to you know SARS-CoV-2, and you know, and, and that's more sort of the global epidemiology of infectious diseases. Uh, so uh, somebody who Greg and I both knew back in the day, a very intrepid reporter, Laurie Garrett for New York Newsday. Things started seeming to come under control in the mid-90s. She took a sabbatical from journalism and spent a year or so in the Council on Foreign Relations and wrote a book called The Coming Plague, you know, copyright 1995. Mm -hmm. And the book talked about the fact that HIV was a zoonosis, you know, it was uh, monkey viruses, recesses, uh, remote areas of uh, Central Africa, that urbanization, changes in sexual mores, global transportation, and economic disparities uh, fueled that epidemic, and that there would be more like that. You know, and SARS-CoV-2 certainly is just one of a slew of you know, different viruses that have emerged because of the fact that we are a global gene pool and that every pandemic is a day away, uh, you know, on, on the planet. But, you know, what, what we'd love to see, and I'd be interested if Craig has any any thoughts of, like, how do we use this as an educable moment so that we all write about it, but, you know, again, we, we don't want to be preaching to the choirs. How do we get the public to sort of get the fact that this is not a one-off, just like global warming, we're likely to see more of these kind of events recurrently, uh, given the world that we're living in. Well, the history of public health is basically boom and bust. Right? When there's a crisis, the world reacts. But public health is largely a, a silent success. You know, The fact that you can go get some takeout during lunch and you don't die of food poisoning, or you turn on your tap and clean water comes out, or you're not choking from the pollution from you know, coal-fired heat in Boston or New York or New Haven or wherever you are, is a triumph of public health. And nobody notices it when it works well. When it doesn't work and when there's a crisis, people notice it, right? And everybody gets, oh, we need to invest in public health, and then it dies down a bit. Right. And so public health, we spend three cents on every dollar in the U.S. in terms of public health versus health care. So a dollar of health care, three cents of that is for public health. Um, our problem in the U.S. was that not that we didn't have a pandemic plan or we didn't have an infrastructure for pandemic preparedness, that our public health system was so weak. 
our social safety net was so weak that we couldn't withstand the sheer force of the number of infections that were coming across into the United States. And so if there's a teachable moment, you know, well, there were two in my lifetime, the AIDS epidemic and now the, the COVID pandemic. Um, and, you know, three strikes, you're out, right? <laughs> you know, we're not going to get another chance. And, you know, the ravages of climate change and other zoonotic disease jumping into humans. At one point, you know, COVID made the AIDS epidemic look like child's play in terms of the scope of it and the speed of it and the number of deaths that happened in such a short period of time. The next thing that comes down the line could be far, far worse. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cheerful. Well, you know, it's it's what we have to think about, though. And the question is how to avoid being Debbie Downer for the, <laughs> for the public, but to be honest and to say, let's let's get real folks. There may not be a simple technological fix, but there's certainly certain investments and you know that we could make that could mitigate the next time this happens. Which factors do you each think contributed to HIV being such a political issue as opposed to a health issue? And can you draw any parallels to our current situation? Well, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll. I mean, I think, you know, it was framed from the outset. I mean, you know, I was, I used to get morbidity and mortality weekly reports on a regular basis, starting when I was a medical student, because I had some interest in infectious diseases. And it, it was free back then. And medical students always learned what were the free journals, you know. So I remember June 5th, 1981, seeing this report. And the term of art of the day were five men, all active homosexuals was uh, was their term, you know, um, the purple prose of, of the era. And I and I really took notice both but because I was a gay man and because uh, up until that point, MMWR never talked about um, sexuality. So, you know, very early on, the sensationalism about the this horrible epidemic was, you know, was around sex. And then, then the question was, well, uh, how do I know, um, you know, for women, how do we know my partner's not bisexual? And, and there's so much, so many phobias about people who use drugs and particularly people who shared needles. So I, it got framed that way and, and the lack of, um, you know, federal leadership. And cer- you know, certainly if there's an analogy, certainly a lot of the misinformation, disinformation that the prior administration put out early on with this uh, pandemic was really so detrimental and, and toxic and you know, politicizing response to the SARS-CoV-2 epidemic in, in ways that it just didn't have to be that way. I mean, it's great success. I mean, I think public health is always going to be political, but political leaders can, can definitely do a lot to mitigate some of those um, challenges. You know, the other thing is that this isn't our first time at the rodeo. You know, so <laughs> the, the politics of infectious disease have always been with us in the U.S. Remember, Jeffrey Amherst used uh, or suggested using smallpox-ridden blankets to annihilate uh, indigenous communities in the U.S. around the time of the Civil War, or, or right afterwards among freed African Americans, former slaves, there was a uh, an outbreak of smallpox that was basically written out of history until Jim Downs wrote a book called Dying for Freedom just five or six years ago that recovered it from the historical record. Um, nobody really cared about it because it was happening to African Americans in the in the newly freed South. And so, you know, the idea that health is not going to be political just doesn't play out in a country that in which whether you get health care or not depends on who you are, what you look like, what you do in bed. If you're a woman of childbearing age, whether you're able to get reproductive health services in the state of Texas. Um, so it's all tied up with politics. Um, and to say that, you know, it shouldn't be and it, you know, there's a there's a way to separate it from that. I think it's hard to do. Just acknowledge it for what it is um, mm-hmm. and and move on and try to do the best for everyone, no, no matter their race, creed, religion, color or, or gender or sexuality. But it would be nice if um, if we could figure out ways to promote more public health literacy in general, you know, because um, I mean, one of the other frustrations is sort of the old, forget it, was it Talleyrand who said, you know, 
history, you know, uh, present, or Marx actually said that history presents itself, you know, first time as tragedy and second time as farce. You know, and, um, so, I mean, the original SARS epidemic didn't cause a lot of deaths in the U.S. It certainly caused some substantial morbidity and mortality in East Asia, and Vancouver was, was heavily hit. And, you know, there were lessons from, from that. So it's not as, even, as if there even wasn't a response to coronaviruses. And one of the things that happened in many Asian cities around that was rapid adoption of masking, for example, and not feeling that mm-hmm. it was an impingement on people's civil rights. So that's that's where both have to figure out how to how to reform the culture, you know, whether whether there are ways to use uh, social media, but also uh, that's where political leadership can really play an important role. Yeah, and we can start teaching public health to, to grade school students and secondary school students. Public health as a field doesn't really enter into people's consciousness until after they're, they've gone through college. We don't have an undergraduate public health major in most places. Um, and so having a greater community literacy about why your lives are safe today, why the childhood vaccines that you took for granted have revolutionized the modern world. My dad had polio when he was two years old. You know, th- those fears of, of uh, a disease ravaging your community the way polio did were not around uh, in, in the same kind of sense until we hit COVID, you know, almost 100 years later. So bringing it back to HIV, Ken, what do you think are some of the most valuable areas for research for HIV now? Greg mentioned a vaccine, for instance. Vaccine work uh, is very exciting. Uh, it's sort of like Sisyphus. The boulder keeps going up the hill and then <laughs> you get close and it goes back down. So there are some things on the horizon with vaccines that may be uh, promising, but um, the most recent vaccine trial was was not uh, successful. So it's it's a challenging process, uh, you know, because the good news is that there is pre-exposure prophylaxis and, uh, and there's counseling and condoms work. So to do a, a vaccine efficacy trial uh, means enrolling thousands and thousands of people. So this, the bar is very high to get to the point to do these trials. So they, they're not going to happen every day. But, uh, you know, fingers crossed, you never know when uh, science will be us. I mean, the other area, which is extremely important, where there's lots of work going on, uh, is cure research and a lot of better understandings of how the virus hides in the body once people are infected and the thought about whether one can coax some of these latent viral particles out and and remove them from the body. That's another important area for research. Yeah, that would be amazing. So Greg, what do you see as the biggest public education issue regarding HIV? What do you see in the community? Well, again, whose community, which community, but a couple of things. One is, um, you know, every 10 years, a New York Times magazine article, well, some magazine article comes out that talks about the hidden epidemic. Oh, that we didn't know African-American young gay men in the rural South are um, suffering from uh, uh, rates of HIV infection that rival sub-Saharan Africa. The other piece of this is around injection drug use. Um, You know, in the 80s and uh, early 90s, HIV transmission by intravenous drug use was a big part of the epidemiology of the disease. But with the advent of needle exchange and other ways to sort of reduce risk, intravenous drug use epidemics of HIV were less and less common. But in 2014, we had an outbreak of HIV in Scott County, Indiana, in which close to 5% of that small community were infected with HIV through, through shared dirty needles contaminated with HIV. Mm-hmm. And Mike Pence, you know, dithered and, and blathered on. Um, and, you know, after most people were already infected, he said we can put a needle exchange uh, into Scott County to, to, to mop mm-hmm. up the remaining HIV being transmitted there. Only two months ago, the Board of Commissioners in Scott County closed that needle exchange. 
Um, meanwhile, we've had six or seven new outbreaks of HIV among people who use drugs from Seattle to Miami to West Virginia to Cincinnati to Boston, Massachusetts. Again, something that we know how to prevent, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we've watched the needle exchanges in West Virginia close across the state in the middle of an HIV outbreak and a hepatitis C outbreak there. We've watched Atlantic City, New Jersey shut its needle exchange. Um, again, in a community that is at high risk of HIV infection. So we're learning, you know, all the things we should have learned, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, we have to relearn again, particularly around HIV prevention. One, one other point I think that's really important to think about is that we, we need a more holistic approach to thinking about the people as opposed to the bugs uh, for some of these uh, issues. So particularly mm -hmm. with regard to HIV, one of the things that the AIDS epidemic really catalyzed was a recognition that men who have sex with men, uh, transgender uh, women and other sexual minorities had specific health issues. And, and, and some of those issues were not just HIV. And now we know that people who are uh, living with HIV, who are on um, effective therapy and their viral load is suppressed in the blood consistently, they're not going to transmit HIV to their partners. And we know that pre-exposure prophylaxis for people who are not infected is highly effective. But we also see in some settings high rates of syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. And you know, the answer is not to withhold pre-exposure prophylaxis or treatment, but it's to develop a more holistic approach to people's sexuality and thinking about, you know, healthcare provision as promoting sexual health. You know, so I think particularly for HIV, I think there's a real opportunity if people can think a little more broadly than just the bug and just the drugs, but think about uh, who are the individuals who are most heavily impacted. And similarly, you know, using focus on HIV to provide a broader suite of harm reduction services for people who inject drugs is, is really the way to go. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you would agree with that, Greg. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining me and sharing your stories and your expertise on this issue. So thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.